Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I remember it was in my mid to late 20s when it dawned on me that the resurrection of Jesus absolutely shattered the afterlife expectations of the ancient world. Now, I knew it was important, but I didn't realize how it turned the worldviews of the, those who were part of the Greek and Roman Empire, um, turned them right on their head. I, I think in the back of my mind, I had lazily assumed that the ancient world was hopelessly superstitious and gullible. You know the attitude. Oh, people back then believed just about anything. Of course, resurrections, yeah, they weren't that incredible. <laughs> Modern humans often feel superior to past generations. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. What the heck was I thinking about the ancient world that I would have thought that they believed that resurrections or afterlife experiences or resuscitations were commonplace occurrences? I mean, did I really think that Roman executioners didn't really believe that dead men stayed dead? Those crucified bodies on the roadsides were not regularly eaten by dogs or dumped into a grave to rot, or the bones fished out and polished and placed in an ossuary. You know, just because we live in a world of possible parallel universes and string theory and stem cell research doesn't change the fact that modern people, just like ancient people, tend to rely on direct sense perception for what they know. It doesn't matter if you were born in 1967 or 1967 B.C., you know that a person who hasn't been breathing for a few hours and whose body has grown cold is dead, not sleeping. And the ancients were tough-minded, not tender-minded. They lived in a tough world, life without refrigeration, life without anesthetics, life without flush toilets, life without first-class travel. <laughs> it's much more likely to form minds that have a tough-minded approach to life's likely outcomes. I mean, widespread deprivation, widespread suffering keep people from forming extravagant, ballooning expectations of what life holds for us. And so the hardships of ancient peasant life tended to confirm that life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. In the famed words of philosopher David Hume, life was tougher then. Hope didn't come easy. Our first century ancestors were probably less optimistic than we are about the world fulfilling their fondest desires when and where they want. I mean, it's hard to imagine a smiley face bumper sticker urging us to expect a miracle today slapped on the rump of a jackass in 70 AD. No, prayers were not more commonly answered in the ancient world. Miracles were not more commonly performed in olden days. Far more than ourselves, the old holies found themselves companies to infant mortality famine, drought, disease, in spite of their prayers. And they knew that God, for whatever reason, was pretty sparing of miracles. I mean, how many parents prayed not to lose a sick child to death in Sheol and didn't have their prayers answered? Read the Psalms, read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you're not in any doubt that unbelief about God's control of human history was a chronic temptation for the old people as much as the modern people. Of course, ancient peoples were ignorant of many facts that we now take for granted, but they weren't more gullible. I mean, the wife of a goat breeder might not have known the number of chromosomes that a man and a woman each contribute to an embryo, but she had no doubt how goats and humans go about reproducing their kind. 
I mean, this is precisely why Joseph, upon learning of the virgin's pregnancy, immediately planned to break off the engagement. It took an act of private revelation to convince him that Mary's child had been miraculously conceived. Why? Simply because he wasn't ignorant of how children, sheep, and goats are normally conceived. He knew, just like all ancient farmers and those raising animals for food or eggs or sacrifice, no, virgins don't conceive. Virgin births are not common. Life's material processes, physical processes, are usually indifferent to our wishes and ideals. You know, nature resists, even repudiates our desire for eternal life. And it's against this unsympathetic natural backdrop that the good news of Christ's resurrection sounds forth. The great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, the fact that dead people do not ordinarily rise is itself part of early Christian belief. It's not an objection to it. The early Christians believed that what had happened to Jesus was precisely something new. It was indeed the start of a whole new mode of existence, a new creation. The fact that Jesus' resurrection was and remains without analogy is not an objection to early Christian claim. It's part of the claim itself. You know, the historical foundation for Christ's resurrection is as strong today as ever, actually probably a little stronger today because of our increased research into, you know, factors of the ancient world. But it basically rests on our basic trust in our senses. Yes, dead men stay dead. Unless, of course, there's credible testimony to the contrary. And the ancients needed to be convinced every bit as much as we do. The resurrection was simply the best explanation of the evidence that they could come across. Uh, The resurrection was a supernatural event. But the evidence in favor of the resurrection were not supernatural evidences. William Lane Craig argues that the resurrection of Jesus is a miraculous explanation of very common-sense arguments. Um, For instance, Jesus' burial. Any historian could investigate that. The discovery of the empty tomb. Any historian could investigate that. The post-mortem appearances of Jesus. Well, the historian may not have access to the experience of the apostles, but he can certainly uh, qualify the apostles as reliable uh, reporters of their experiences. Um, And a historian can investigate the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection and how it contributed to the rise of the Christian church. Um, None of these four facts is in any way supernatural or inaccessible uh, to the historian. Uh, as I said, even anti-supernaturalists will concede the fact of a burial, the death of Jesus, and the discovery of the empty tomb. And they also will concede that the early reports of the resurrection in St. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 15, that eyewitness tradition is shockingly early uh, in its transmission. And further, The church was born in a hostile environment very soon after Christ's death, Uh, you know, considered the day of Pentecost, for heaven's sakes. Some remarkable experience regalvanized the band of disciples who had been scattered by Jesus' violent premature death. Something fortified them, fused them together again, propelled them back into the heart of Jerusalem. What was it? The reappearance of the crucified Christ— 
now raised in glory and made evident to their senses, the same senses that had told them earlier that dead men stay dead. Now those same senses are telling them that in this case, death had been conquered. I, I always like to point out that the apostles didn't go running off to foreign lands to preach the gospel. They went right back into the heart of Jerusalem where they had hostile witnesses, where they had those who could challenge the apostles' account of the facts. Uh, and yet those accounts were unchallenged. This Jesus, whom you killed, has been raised from the dead and were witnesses to his glory. Repent and believe the good news. You know, I had the, the Romans or the Jews had the body. They could have conveniently pulled it out of cold storage, dropped it into an ox cart, and wheeled it through the streets of Jerusalem, exploding the delusion of the apostles. They would have killed Christianity not in the cradle, but in the womb. But they didn't, even though it would have served their purposes to restore, restore quiet and shut down these new zealots. On the other hand, had the disciples stolen the body, they were caught in a psychological impossibility. Here they were, putting their lives on the line, for a, a phony, made-up story that they had cooked up? People may die for what they mistakenly believe. Nobody dies for what they know is a lie. The historical arguments you know, themselves are powerful. But Benedict XVI says, We also know that the resurrected Christ is alive today, and he's available to us. In Saved by Hope, his second encyclical, he wrote... His kingdom is not an imaginary hereafter situated in a future that will never arrive. His kingdom is present wherever he is loved and wherever his love reaches us. His love alone gives us the possibility of soberly persevering day by day without ceasing to be spurred on by hope. Hope in a world which by its very nature is imperfect. His love is at the same time our guarantee of the existence of what we only vaguely sense and which nevertheless in our deepest self we await, a life that is truly life itself. Um, you know, the elite thinkers in D.C. and New York may find our solution to the problem of death implausible. But what they can't say is that we've somehow misstated the problem. The world still believes dead men stay dead. But it's right there at the doorway of stench, slime, membranes, myelin sheaths, decomposition, and disease that the light of Christ's glory shines. And the resurrected Christ is not shy about his materiality. Put your fingers in my side. Touch my scars. Let's break bread together. We'll have some fish this Sunday down on the Galilean seashore. Look, look at my hands and feet. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone, as you see that I have. So no matter how many think our solution to the problem of death is implausible, um, they simply can't say that we got the problem wrong. Love is the final apologetic. And as the Song of Songs puts it, love is stronger than death. Love renders plausible those realities which are not so easily seen. In truth, we're not so different from the ancients. We fundamentally believe the evidence of our senses that dead men stay dead. Unless some trustworthy witness sees differently. And if some guy doesn't stay dead, 
that he has to do something more than give us a freak show. He has to give us the cure for what ails us. You know, I have a disease. I want to live forever. And I look all around me, and I'm told I won't live forever. Nature tells me no. But in Jesus, I really think I hear, yes, eternal life. For this you were born. I in you, and you in me, as I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Where I go, you will follow, and my destiny will be your destiny. I mean, what can you say to that except amen? Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> 